Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome back Eric Reese. You came back. Thank you for successfully navigating the cold and everything and coming back. Uh, we are really honored to have you. How was the breakout sessions? Good? People learned some things? Okay, good. Uh, we have, of course, always, as good conference organizers, saved the best for last. Uh, I am extremely honored uh, to welcome our next two speakers. We're going to have a conversation with them. And hopefully, we're going to use the same super high-tech, quantum computing-powered uh, electronic question and answer system that we used yesterday with such great effect. It did seem to work, so we're going to try it again today. So hopefully, they will put the URL on the screen, and we will uh, walk through exactly how to ask a question of our two next guests, uh, both of whom you know, we don't usually allow venture capitalists to participate in the Lean Startup Conference, but we make a special exception only for uh, people who have significant and unique operating experience as entrepreneurs and therefore have something very interesting to say, uh, advice to share. Uh, we had one of our speakers, we had Mark Andreessen last year. We we're very, very, very honored to have him back uh, and to be joined by his partner at Andreessen Horowitz, Chris Dixon. So please join me in giving a very warm welcome to Chris and Mark. Come on up, guys. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, you guys sit on the couch. <coughs> Welcome back. Thanks. Yes, thanks. We are uh, really very honored to have you, as I said. Um, Mark, we got a little bit above your personal story last time, but I thought maybe uh, since, for, I don't know, maybe like three people in the audience, Chris, they don't know you as well, uh, we could get a little bit of your story and just how did you become an entrepreneur in the first place and how did you wind up at Andreessen Horowitz? Of all yeah, sure. So. Um, uh, probably, like a lot of people in this business, I started off um, playing around with computers when I was a kid and um, got interested in programming and tried to make video games, and um, I think kind of like you, right? <laughs> and, then, uh, um, and then I actually took some, I actually got into other things for a while and um, uh, studied philosophy actually in college, okay. and then um, um, basically then, to make a long story short, uh, started two companies. The first company was a consumer, uh, consumer security company called Site Advisor, um, which I started in 2004. And um, that company was acquired by McAfee eventually. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, the second company was a machine learning company called Hunch, um, which again, after some time, was acquired by eBay. And, um, and I got interested after Site Advisor also in angel investing and startups. Um, and then that eventually led to sort of wanting to think about doing investing at a larger scale, and then I joined Mark and Andreessen Horowitz. Very cool. Now, when we first met, you know, you, you were a very new VC blogger on the scene, writing about the New York startup uh, scene, and, and really, I used to think of you anyway as like really a very New York-centered investor and entrepreneur, uh, but you've kind of come out here. Yeah. I mean, it, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask about differences between that New York startup scene and, and the Valley. What do you see? So I think New York is, uh, um, it, you know, so, so the, the history of the, sort of the New York tech community is in the 90s, uh, during the dot-com boom, there was this, you know, as they called it, Silicon Alley, and there were mm. companies like DoubleClick, and it was most of the activity was focused around uh, online advertising. Um, and then after when the crash came, it really hit New York hard, and um, people, you know, sort of Wall Street reemerged during the real estate boom. Um, and, and then I think around... Probably around, I think two things happened. Like one is the crash of the Wall Street, and people, a lot of engineers and other people started thinking about doing other things. Um, the other thing I think that happened is that um, a lot of the activity on the internet kind of moved, um, you know, sort of to, to more 
um, taking the technology and applying it to various industries, so applying it to you know, the media industry or in the case of like LA into sort of you know, like Hollywood type stuff in New York, mm -hmm. it's like advertising media and just sort of that, that combined with the fact that the tools got much better so you could, you could build a website and put it on AWS or something yep. and not be you know, uh, whatever, a PhD in computer science and build an interesting website. So you had a whole bunch of, you know, so for example, like I'm an angel investor in uh, Kickstarter and the founders there are really just sort of creative types who aren't, mm -hmm. they, you know, they have some they have you know, some sort of technical background, but that's not their primary focus. So you sort of saw these kinds of interesting hybrid companies, which I think kind of benefits both New York and other kind of non-Silicon Valley Certainly. places like LA, Seattle, et cetera. Mm -hmm. uh, do you have any tips for our non-technical founders here? Uh, for non so since we're talking about that, we, we have kind of an interesting mix of very technical, nerdy people like me and, and some people who are a little bit more popular in high school. <laughs> yeah, so. Um, <laughs> The, uh, it's, it depends, I guess, if everyone, I don't know if everyone here is, are they all thinking about technology companies or just generally startups? It's a but pretty wide range. If you're thinking about a technology company, I think it's, it's always a good idea to have, I don't know what you think, Mark, but I think it's always a good idea to have technology people on your core team. I think being a nerd in high school and taking the beatings every day is very helpful preparation for taking the beatings every day as a founder. <laughs> I certainly did. Yeah. <laughs> Especially I, if at some point you learn to punch back. Yeah. Well, I, I never kind of mastered that part. Which makes a lot, makes, makes a lot. Maybe I still have some things to learn then. Makes a lot more fun. I mean, look, the, the, for, for tech, uh, to me, the big, the big difference, I, I, I'm a believer, technology companies are different than non-technology companies. I think there's a fundamental distinction. And by the way, I say that saying I think technology companies are harder. Mm -hmm. Like, I, I aspire, I was to say, I aspire someday to be, like, in a non-technology company. Like, I, <laughs> you know, I read about these companies like Campbell's Soup. And I'm just so envious because, like, 100 years ago, they put soup in a can, and 100 years later, they're still selling soup in a can. And I'm like, how do, you know, how do I get into the soup racket? Like, this just sounds incredible. Um, because, so the, the, the difference, the, the, the sort of formal difference between uh, non-tech and tech is in tech, uh, in tech, the one thing you know in tech, in a tech company, the one thing you know is whatever you're making today is not what you're going to be selling in five years because you'll either be making something else or you'll be out of business because your right. current thing will go obsolete. And so the way I think about it is the output of a tech, the, the output of a soup company is soup, the output of a car company is cars, the output of a tech company is innovation. Mm -hmm. um, and so tech companies that succeed have innovation at their core, um, and I think it's hard to have a tech company that is good at innovation without having an innovator at its core, which usually is, you know, is, mm -hmm. is a, a technology innovator. Um, and so, you know, uh, and, you know, business people, non-tech people play an incredibly important role in tech companies, but by far the best strategy for a non-tech entrepreneur who wants to start a tech company is go staple yourself uh, to the best possible tech entrepreneur you can find. Yeah, we call it the revenge of the nerd strategy. Yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but so, well, actually, I really want to ask about that because you guys are famous for investing on the thesis that software is eating the world and that more and more and more industries that used to be considered non-tech are becoming tech industries. Like, is this just your backdoor way of saying that everyone's going to be in a tech business in the future and therefore every company is going to have to survive by what well, we've been talking a lot about the next couple of days, last couple of days, continuous innovation? Yeah. So I think in the long run, every industry becomes, the te becomes a technology mm -hmm. industry, a technology-driven industry. Some are going to take much longer than others, um, but even ones where you wouldn't think they are, they're moving actually really fast now. Yeah. So two examples of things that have become tech businesses fundamentally, um, and I'll just go off topic for a second, but a very big one, like warfare has become a technology business, a, a technology industry. Like, um, you know, the, the, you know, the days of sending just you know, soldiers into the battlefield with a, with a rifle are like long gone. And now it's all about, they, they use the term information dominance and they have this whole idea of network-centric warfare and you've got drones and you know, all these automated systems and um, you know, GPS and maps and you know, satellites. You know, the, the, you know the, the, the Department of Defense has become an incredibly sophisticated technology organization oh, yeah. you know, because it had to. 
Um, you know, another field, you just take like oil and gas, like oil and gas seems like the last industry that would become a tech industry, but in practice, the oil and gas companies are extremely sophisticated users of computers and software and have been for 30 years. Mm -hmm. um, cars, I think, are ground zero right now. I think the car industry is in the process of becoming a technology industry right now. Yep. And I think you can see that by getting into a Tesla sedan and taking a drive. And it's like, you know, there's like an old fashioned car that's like gurgling <laughs> and burping and backfire, you know, doing all the stuff it does with whatever crappy embedded, you know, firmware or media player it has in the dash that you just hate and want to throw out of the car, yeah. right? And then you get in the Tesla and it's like, you're literally like, you're literally like, you're literally driving like a rolling laptop, right? It's like, it's got like the big laptop screen in the dash and it's got all the gorgeous software and Google Maps and internet radio. And then it's got a thousand pounds of batteries that are the exact same thing as a laptop battery and it just happens to have wheels. Right. It's Tesla actually disconcerting. Wheels. Tesla's disconcerting. You pop, the, you pop the hood, you know, you want to see how this stuff all works. And you pop the hood and it's just a second trunk. Right. Like, <laughs> there's actually nothing under the damn hood. It's just like, it's just like this little electric engine and it goes like, you know, incredibly fast. And so I feel like the car industry is in the process, you know, auto industry, and this is right, profound. Auto industry is a 120 year old business. Oh, yeah. It's just in the process of becoming a technology business today. Yeah, it's funny you mentioned oil and gas and, and auto because, of course, we, we heard from Toyota and from GE right. uh, over the last two days. And, and in fact, the guys who were here from Toyota were telling a story about trying to figure out how do they change their cycle time. Uh, in Toyota to be able to deal with the fact that you know, they didn't put it this way, but that a car has become a tablet with wheels. Yeah. Uh, and how hard that is for people in the mainline company to really understand, because they think of themselves as making engines and parts and mechanical things. Yeah. Uh, and it's such a difficult difference. I'm curious, though, like, what's so interesting to me about it is that Toyota has always been known as the fastest cycle time competitor in the auto industry, because they could, you know, they could do a new model every year, and GM could do one every two years, and that difference in cycle time is huge. All of a sudden now, they still think of themselves as a fast cycle time competitor, but they're up against consumer electronics and software companies for whom a year is an eternity. And I don't know when the last time we put the year in the name of a piece of software, but we used to do that. We don't do that anymore because it, a year is much too long for yeah. that to happen. Yeah. Um, so I'm curious, first of all, do you see that happening you know, across many industries? Do you, you must meet a lot of people who are kind of in the midst of that transition now. Um, I think, yeah, I think it, it is happening in a lot of industries. I think that what we see uh, in particular is it's um, sort of the, the most difficult industries to penetrate are the, are the, um, the ones where there's heavy regulation. Mm -hmm. um, and I think what we're finding is that as sort of software and technology is moving um, more deeply into yeah. those industries, like we're, we're seeing the entrepreneurs that we spend time with uh, thinking much more about those things. Um, mm -hmm. And so... Um, you know, that, that um, I don't know if you... We'll talk about yeah. slow cycle times. Yeah, well, right. Regulation yeah. Um, is, a, is a slow cycle time. Yeah, so it, it, feels like, it feels like the world wants to accelerate. Like, yeah. it feels like all the products want to accelerate. I mean, the car point, you know, Tesla, Tesla gets software updates over the air in the middle of the night. Like, yeah. you get in your car the next morning, and, like, it's got all these new features. Like, and, you know, compare and contrast that to even the best, you know, historical car companies. And so the world feels like it wants to move factor, faster. Everything feels like it wants to go online. Everything wants to be behind a pane of glass. Like, yep. And, and, and then you just, like, I, I, you know, like one of my theories, like, like our industry is winning in really significant ways. Like we really are, the technology industry, the software industry, the Silicon Valley model really is, you know, sort of, you know, sort of, um, you know, expanding into or colonizing or infecting, depending yeah. on your point of view, uh, you know, many fields that historically have been relatively separate, um, but more and more, and, and the opportunities are going up, like more and more you get into, mm -hmm. you know, cars. You, 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 basically, we can use software as a lever on the real world in a new way. Yeah. Like we can use software to fundamentally improve the real world. We can use software to go after bits. We can go after, uh, use software to go after things like how many cars are going to be on the road, right? Or right. power, you know, power efficiency or, you know, carbon emissions or, you know, all these very interesting kinds of real world things are like, you know, how, you know, all kinds of things. 
um, more and more of those fields, you, you, you go deeper and deeper, the, the really interesting fields are much more heavily regulated. Um, mm -hmm. Silicon Valley historically has completely shied away from going into regulated industries. I think we no longer have that option because- You think, think it's gonna have to change? What's that? Do you have advice for entrepreneurs who are gonna try to tackle that, that challenge? Well, we see two kinds of entrepreneurs going after regulated industries. I would say we see the, the, the kind we like, which is the ones Chris was just talking about, which is they've like just completely decoded the regulatory environment uh, and they totally understand it and they totally understand the incentives. The, the big thing about heavily regulated environments, it's not that you can't have startups, it's that the incentives are different. They're not just market incentives or some other set of incentives that have been put in place mm -hmm. by the regulation. And if the really, really smart entrepreneurs can find the sort of tweaks in the incentives that make certain things possible, right. that may not even be possible in an unregulated market uh, or certainly let you outfox competitors. Yeah. There's the other kind of entrepreneur that's just like blind um, <laughs> and just like in denial um, and just goes you know, straight into the brick wall at 100 miles an hour. So I don't know, maybe there needs to be like you know, lean startup for the regulated Well, industry. of course, as you're talking, I'm sitting there thinking like the, it's like another kind of risk that calls yeah. out for that kind of experimentation yeah, where now right. you have to combine your customer risk with you know, not just advertiser risk. I mean, the first time we did this conference, it's pretty much all mobile apps and you know, it's very software oriented. I think this time we're probably half physical products or something. And yeah, the yeah. issue of regulation comes up. And it's just like another thing that you have to experiment yeah, and I think be willing a, to discover what's really true in the world. It's a big world. change. Like I don't remember talking about regulation you know, until recently for the most part in this industry. But talk, talk about your, th your theory um, of the financial services entrepreneurs. Like, so another part of this we talk a lot about are there are entrepreneurs who like try to work within the regulation framework versus those that try to start completely outside it, maybe? Yeah, what we see is a bunch of, a lot of entrepreneurs who have, so if you take industries like healthcare or mm -hmm. financial services that are heavily regulated, um, we've seen a lot of repeat entrepreneurs who um, have sort of, they start off sort of trying to go straight down the middle yeah. um, and, and, you know, create an alternative bank or something like this. Uh -huh. And they find that the system is set up such that you need hundreds of millions of dollars of legal fees and things like this to even get started. And then they come back um, and they try something like this is, I think, one of the reasons that uh, Bitcoin is so... Uh, popular right now is is it's sort of an outlet it's a release valve mm -hmm. for entrepreneurs who want to who want to take on the banks or do something like this um, and, but it's a way to do it sort of completely outside of the system in a more radical way mm -hmm. uh, as a response to the frustration they had um, trying to do it kind of in the more straightforward way this is actually very inter it's very entertaining for us because usually you find a founder who's done you know four companies in a row in an unregulated business and they kind of get more conservative over time yeah like they get kind of more serious more conservative you find the entrepreneurs in financial services or healthcare they get completely radicalized yeah. right like by the time they're in their 50s they're just like crazy like they're ready to go <laughs> just like completely off the trail because they want to go find some place where the regulators haven't even thought uh -huh. of what to do. Yep. Somebody said to us, somebody, one of a friend of ours in, um, in uh, a very experienced uh, legal uh, expert said to us, he's like, you know, Bitcoin, he's like, congratulations on Bitcoin. You have successfully found something that can be simultaneously regulated as a security, a commodity, <laughs> um, a currency, and a contract. Um, and so he said, the bad news is everybody's going to regulate it. The good news is all those regulatory agencies are going to have to have a giant fight. Right, yeah, right. Who's they might cancel each other out before they come yeah. after you, and so that's the that's the window that I think all the Bitcoin companies are going to try to sneak through. Okay, well, I know we can talk about Bitcoin for an hour, and I actually, yeah. I mean, I'm happy to geek out on it too. <laughs> uh, but we'll maybe save that. We'll see if people have questions about Bitcoin. You know, we're very happy to talk about it, but we don't have to, uh, don't have to hijack this, this with. Uh, yeah, it's like, right. Yeah, topic. I know. It's, it's it's a pretty fun topic. Um, maybe uh, Mark, when you were here last year, you said something that made me very happy, um, which I'm going to repeat so that everyone here makes sure that they know that you said it. Uh, which is that you felt like Lean Startup was like the general theory of relativity, and it had kind of you know, given us a unifying theory of entrepreneurship was very flattering. 
Uh, and I was so excited about the fact that you said that, I'm very happy to tweet it out. And everyone do remember to tweet it out again. It's really, it's pretty great. Uh, no, I was so excited about it. I actually missed the second. I mean, I heard the second thing that you said, but it didn't sink in until, until a little bit later. You said, actually, but what's happening is a lot of people are building companies and forgetting the Newtonian mechanics of like the very basic operations of building a sales force, uh, figuring out the distribution. And they somehow have interpreted Lean Startup as like build it and they will and it will self-distribute to the people yeah. who will come. Yeah, that's right. I was pretty horrified. Yeah. So maybe first let me check out, is that still happening? Has it gotten better at least since last year? Yeah, so there was a famous South Park episode with the underpants gnomes. <laughs> yeah. Does everybody remember the underpants gnomes? Underpants gnomes sneak around in the middle of the night and steal your underpants. And at one point in the episode, they, they, the underpants gnomes explain their business model, um, which is step one, uh, steal underpants. Step three, profit. Step two, <laughs> question mark. Um, and um, the thing we see is step one, minimum viable, minimum viable product, step three, profit, step two, question mark. Yeah. Right? And, and so you know, it's the same thing, lean startup, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, question mark. And the question mark, uh, you made the Newtonian mechanics reference because it, it has to do with all the stuff that like, hits the real world. So you yeah. know, Newtonian mechanics is mass and velocity and gravity and little things like that. In the real world, it's things like you know, the world is a very, very large place. Most people do not just automatically adopt the best new product. Right. Um, you know, there's generally, for any successful company you look at, there's and some just absolutely massive, over time, a massive sales and marketing effort put behind it. There's opportunities to apply creativity to that, no doubt, but there's a lot of just practical mechanics of how to build a company to scale. Um, and actually, there's a, there's a broader, um, there's sort of a broader, there's sort of a broader theory behind this. So, so basically what happened, it's a very interesting thing that's happened in the Valley, I think. So in the early 90s, when I came to Silicon Valley, it was so hard to start a company that any company that got started, to, to, to get started and to get funded and to raise the amount of money required to get going, which was just so much more than it is today, it's like at least 20, 30 million dollars in old dollars, um, to, to even get a company off the ground. Um, and so the company to actually get funded and get off the ground, it had to actually be good at product development and sales and marketing from the start, or it literally mm -hmm. couldn't raise the money. And then in the late 90s, the bubble hit. And when the bubble hit, this really weird thing happened, which is like the sales guys and the MBAs, um, the, including my, my, my friend here who's an MBA plus, 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 plus. <laughs> um, but uh, the MBAs without technical backgrounds, uh, unlike Chris, um, the, the sort of business people, the sales people took over. And, and then you had this whole phenomenon of companies that were basically sales engines with no product, right? Or, or with really, really terrible products, right? And in fact, a lot of engineers in the Valley worked at those companies and worked on terrible products that they weren't proud of. And they were excited for a brief moment in time because it's like, you know, they go home at night and they tell their, you know, tell their, their husband or their wife, you know, boy, I'm working on like the worst product I've ever seen, but my company just went public 15 <laughs> months in and we're worth $100 million. And that was great until the market crashed and then they lost their house, right? And that took a lot of the bloom off the rose. Um, Ten years later, um, the, um, the, the sort of pendulum has swung entirely in the other direction, um, where the good news is the engineers, for the most part, have taken over the companies again. The companies really have, the best Silicon Valley companies are the ones I think people generally acknowledge that have really, are really focused on, on product innovation and technical innovation, but you've got this whole generation of entrepreneurs who either lived through this terrible period in the late 90s and are like, I never, ever want to repeat that. And mm -hmm. the one thing I know from that is sales and marketing is evil. Yeah. Right? Or you get the young entrepreneurs that have just been hearing ghost stories all this time. Right. Right? And been hearing basically, you know, distilled down to its core essence, you know, the number one source of company failure is to bring in your first sales guy. Right. Um, and so the, the pendulum has like swung in this like real extreme mm -hmm. um, where people are extremely, we, we just see entre lots of entrepreneurs um, who are extremely resistant to this idea of kind of engaging with the world. Mm -hmm. um, and and, and this was the, the conversation yeah. we started to have last year, which is yeah, when, when this really goes sideways, it's the, and, and it's the lean startup theory, that, it's lean startup theory among others, customer development theory that gets used as a crutch in, in, in my view. Yeah, yeah, yeah oh, which we find totally horrifying. Yeah. 
Uh, uh, Kent Beck said yesterday that when you publish a book, you can't prevent people from using it for bad purposes, like propping up a desk or you know, committing murder with it by hitting someone over the head. Right. I feel a bit like that. Yeah. So, but like, all right, so I, it's, it's inconceivable that anyone could, could feel that way, but where do you think that idea comes from? I mean, obviously, there's certainly a number of people who actually were burned by too much sales and marketing overinvestment and MBA bozos, but you know, now we're talking about a new generation of founders who have not experienced that directly and are somehow like, using this as an excuse to kind of get themselves back inside the building and in their kind of cloistered space. What have you guys seen I in think, terms of I getting think part of it's of also the, the press, is that the press tends to focus, sort of the mainstream press, they tend to focus on these, on these really kind of um, exceptional, particularly consumer internet companies. Mm -hmm. So you have these stories like Instagram, which is a phenomenal success, and you know, they, you know, they did a phenomenal job. Um, but it really, really, really is the exception to like build, go out and like have this eureka moment yeah. and build this amazing product and then three weeks later to have half the world using it. And those, yeah. But those are the ones that kind of get, you know, the Vanity Fair profile and the New York Times and everything else, um, which I think kind of keeps, so there are those, you know, it does happen occasionally. Mm -hmm. um, but, uh, and, and those are the ones that are sort of the most glamorous ones that get a lot of attention. I think that's part of the issue. Now, I will say, like, of the two worlds, I mean, I lived through the late 90s. I much prefer this period. Yeah. I mean, yeah. you know, the, the, the good news is these, com these companies, the, the, the best new companies are, like, overflowing with substance. Yeah, and they're making great products. They're making great products. And, like, the great products are, like, wonderful and incredible. And, like, if you marry a great product to a great sales and marketing strategy, like, the world is your oyster. Like, it's, well, and the other good amazing. news is, it, is that it's much easier for, um, for people, like, investors and advisors to help you out with the sales and marketing yeah. than it is. Right. Like you can't help someone out with if they have no product vision or no technical ability. Um, yeah, and actually a lot of yeah. the, the kind of theory behind our firm is to find very product um, and, and technology focused entrepreneurs who have, and, and sort of help them build up that infrastructure, um, the sort of sales and marketing, go to market, all the other kinds of things you need. Yeah, I, I found that when people come to me ask for startup advice, you know, they read the book, they're expecting me to tell them about MVPs or to pivot or something like that. Of course, someone asks you whether they need to pivot or not, you already know the answer. People who have product market fit never ask that question. So it's like, yeah, if you're asking me, you, you already know. Uh, but I find the number one problem I actually have to talk to people about is you have no vision. So if you have no hypothesis, all the science in the world won't help you. You can't test something that you either don't care about, aren't passionate about, have no connection to. And that's been a huge theme in the last couple of days is you know, the really importance of having a philosophy of being long-term, of having a long-term vision, of trying to create sustaining value. Um, you guys have, have, uh, are famous for having said you're the last long-term money in the market along with Warren Buffett. We don't, well, is that high-quality venture capitalists? Yeah. Not just us, but high-quality venture high capitalists. Sorry, I didn't mean to imply. High-quality VCs, you know, top VCs, top, good, good VCs, good VCs. Good VCs are 10-plus years time horizon, and we would include ourselves in that bucket. Warren Buffett is 10-plus years time horizon. Everybody else is like a year and shrinking fast. Right. Um, which is a very weird thing, but, yeah. Go okay, ahead. All right, so, but, so I want to know, so, so most, most people here, what they really want to know, I think, is what do I need to do if I'm building a new company, if I'm trying to do something new, what, how can I be doing to lay that foundation of long-term sustainability, of kind of encapsulating that vision into my company? You know, what are the things that you guys as operators did or, didn't, or wish you had done in the early days that then you know, it came back to bite you? Like, what advice can you offer there? Um, so I think there's a bunch of things. I think one, I mean, first is, is, is um, sort of who you partner with, in particular also your investors, like finding the right people. And I think that you know, what happens sometimes when when, like, at the moment, I think sort of venture capital and technology startups are, are um, popular or sort of, you know, uh, uh, sort of trendy. Um, and as a result, you have a lot of people going and, and raising VC money or, you know, angel money who, um, 
who, whose goals aren't really aligned with their investors' goals. Mm -hmm. um, so I think, you know, in particular, like, if, if you raise from our style of investors, we expect a certain growth rate and a certain sure. trajectory um, where there's, you know, 95, 98% of the, of the great businesses in the world don't operate that way and shouldn't operate that way and shouldn't raise money from mm -hmm. people like us. Um, so I think that's number one. Um, and um, I think, you know, there's all sorts of things you could talk about in terms of having, well, one is you should expect your startup will be a, at least five years, probably 10 years, hopefully forever kind of endeavor. And you should be working on a problem that you think is, is worthy, of worthy, that, of that. worthy of that uh, time. Um, and I think that tends to, and then I would say also with employees, um, to sort of, you know, imbue that kind of um, long-term vision as well. And that often, it often coincides with sort of long-term mission-driven companies is that, right. that they'll tend to hire people who, ha who share that vision and buy into it and are working for more than just kind of a... Um, the short term. Um, so there's a couple things that come to mind. The good news is there's a real positive attraction uh, sort of thing. Um, I think that really good technical people are increasingly, starved is the wrong word. I think they were starved. I think there's more options yeah. now, but really good technical people, and maybe they, they do the quick hits once or twice or go to the trendy startups once or twice out of, out of college, but there's a point where they would really, a lot of the best ones would really like to buckle down and do something really serious. Mm -hmm. Like they would like to go solve a very serious problem. They'd like to bite off a very serious technical challenge. They'd like to join a company. So uh, Peter Thiel talks a lot about this with respect to this. I find this just a very striking, very amazing, interesting idea, which is he says people really don't understand what Elon Musk has been able to do with Tesla and SpaceX, which is it's not just, you know, built a new car, built a new rocket ship. It's that each of Tesla and SpaceX were the first new company in their respective domains in like 40 years. Right. Right. So like literally there had not been a new car company for a very, like literally DeLorean was like the last new car company and that, you know, melted down over a giant cocaine scandal, which is a very entertaining story in and of itself. But there had not been, um, you know, and rocket, there had been a private rocket ship company for like 40 years. And so he said, look, the, the, if, you could, if you have like this like mission, this moonshot mission, it's like build a new electric car properly mm -hmm. or, or build a new private uh, space company, you have the opportunity to go get all the really good engineers. You can go get a monopoly on the really good right. engineers um, who want to work in that field, right? And you can pull them straight out of all the incumbents, you know, because they're frustrated working for Lockheed or somebody like that. Um, or you can get them straight out of school and they're just tremendously excited to not be working on, you know, some, you know, secondary, you know, the 48,000th, you know, e-commerce site. Um, and uh, so you can just, you can, you, can, you can go get just amazing people and you basically have a monopoly on the talent. And so I think that's the other side of it. And I think mm -hmm. that uh, the fact that Elon has done so well with both of his companies, I think is inspiring a new set of entrepreneurs to say, okay, there are these really, really big challenges out there. Um, and then I think, I think technical people are rising to the, rising to the challenge. Okay, hold on. I, I, I'm, I'm just going through some of the audience questions that are coming, come in. We're getting a lot of VC, how to be an investor, how to pitch investor kind of questions, which we will get to some of that. But uh, I'd like to keep our focus as much as possible on operating questions and kind of being an entrepreneur. So I just kind of, those who want to ask those questions, we're going to bump those right up to the top of the queue. So just as, as, a, as a hint. Um, uh, so, but, but here's one that's kind of a little bit on that borderline. So, uh, of the hundreds of pitches that you see, I think this person strongly uh, uh, underestimates how many pitches you guys have to look at on a regular basis. But of the, of the many pitches that you see, what questions do you find yourself asking over and over again to the founders? Well, I think one thing we like to do is, we, we, you know, if, let's say we have an hour meeting, is spend, I think people are sometimes surprised, we'd like to spend 20 minutes, half an hour of the meeting understanding both the person's background or the founders' backgrounds, and also, in particular, with a focus on how that background led to them starting that company. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of the best um, companies were sort of uh, the culmination of, of, of both sort of the, the kind of convergence of skills that were earned over 
you know, many years of practice, whether they be technical or business or whatever, the, you know, or product focused or industry focused. If I, you know, I worked in the fashion industry and I figured this out or I, uh, you know, I worked on a PhD program in computer science. And so there's a, com there's a combination of the skills and then some, some sort of like life experience or insight or something else which, made, which sort of drove them to, um, to sort of see a problem and want to solve that problem. Um, and, and I think sort of that kind of authenticity and sort of dedication is very important and often will come through um, in, in that discussion. I think talk about the, the idea maze. Yeah, yeah. So the, the second thing I would say is I, the way I think of startup ideas is uh, our partner, uh, Bology, has a um, new partner, kind of congratulations, a new partner, by the thinks, way. Yeah, he's great. great. Um, is uh, this idea of what he calls the idea maze. Um, and you sort of think of a startup idea as, a, as like a maze. And there's you know walls and dead ends, and there's little pots of gold and you know bad guys that eat you or something, and you're sort of navigating that maze. And it's, I think it's related to your ideas, Eric. Of you know, and, and if you hit a wall, you'll pivot or you'll turn. Mm -hmm. um, and and most I think people, if you talk to entrepreneurs who've been through it, they'll just they'll I think they'll, this will resonate with them because they've experienced this and they've sort of gone through this and hit these walls. Um, and what you'll do if you if you're if you're very prepared and you've really dug into what the startup idea that you're working on is you can't you can't know the whole maze ahead of time but you can do a lot to kind of understand it um, so you know if you're starting a business that you know licenses content from the movie industry um, you can probably learn a lot of lessons from people who started businesses and licensed content from let's say the music industry or something and like what challenges they have and you know or if you're building a you know a social mobile app you know you can learn from what was worked and not worked for other people and sort of through history and analogy and and talking to customers or customer development kind of things you can really kind of map out the maze and you can't know exactly what's going to happen but you're going to say you know what I might hit this wall and if I do, I've got these three moves I've thought about. And by the way, like it's a sort of, I think it's is it Eisenhower who said all, you know, um, uh, 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 plans are nothing, but planning is, is uh, indispensable. Um, so it's sort of this idea that you'll never, this maze, by the way, will change completely and you'll never completely, you know, you'll never get it right. Mm -hmm. But I think it's the degree to which you sort of thought through all of these different possibilities and understood it. Um, and I think that's sort of, if you think of the meeting as an hour, the first half might be on the sort of the origin story and the yeah. second half is sort of walking through that maze and sort of understanding the depth of thinking that goes, that's gone into it. Mm -hmm. um, it seems related to something you were saying a moment ago, Mark, which was, you know, there are companies that kind of have that growth potential for product market fit and the hyper growth and they're therefore venture investable and ones that aren't. But if you're thinking about an idea, if you're working in a company, how can you tell the difference? Obviously, after the fact, it's pretty easy to be like, well, you, you had the hockey stick or you didn't. You see these crazy compounding growth rates. If you're in, in the long, flat part, you know, how do you know? Well, so it's, it's, it's the, hockey, the hockey stick is much, you know, cliched and much uh, maligned. But there, there really are just, there really are two kinds of businesses. There are the yeah. kinds of businesses where, the, what we're looking, the, the only kinds of businesses we can find, and, the only, and there's a long-winded explanation as to why venture capital can only fund these kinds of businesses, but they have to be, they have to have the potential for the hockey stick. They have to have the potential for serious scalability, right? They have to, like, if they hit, if they hit properly, if the product hits right, if the market is large enough, if, if, if the idea maze is navigated properly, there's a point at which they'll just, they'll just go. Right. Um, and you think it's important to have modeled that out in advance? I think it's important to have some sense of why that's going to be the case, like to have some theory on that. You know, to have it modeled out as much as you can, which goes back to the idea maze thing. Yeah. Um, I'll give you a related, uh, a related concept, which is one of the things that really turns, one of the things that turns us off, um, specifically, and you see all the time, is the top-down the top market size slide, right? And so you see these, you see pitches a lot, and they'll come in, and it'll be, and in the old days, it was always IDC or Forrester or Gartner Group, yeah. and these days, it's whatever <laughs> new analyst firm is, is hanging out trying to make a name for itself, and they'll literally come in, and it'll be like, you know, we're going to, we have this new thing we're going to build, and it's some new wearable gadget, and we have market size, you know, it's a 30, you know, the wearable computing market's going to be $35 billion in, you know, three years, yeah. right? This sort of top-down thing, or even worse, you'll 
policy, you know, we're going to be, we're an online education startup, and the, did you know that the top down market size for education globally is $2 trillion a year, right? And all we yeah. need to do is get 3% of that, <laughs> you know? So, and you just see this over and over again, the, 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 what, what we look for and what the, we, we think the really good entrepreneurs do naturally is they just, ignore, they just ignore all that, that stuff's just noise. What they do instead is they do bottoms up market sizing. Mm -hmm. um, and so, and the really, really, really good product and product marketing people do this kind of naturally. Um, is bottoms up market sizing, which is literally, it's, it's, it's like nose counting. It's like, okay, like how many customers are there that are going to buy this product at this time for this price, right? And then, and then it's not just, you know, a single answer to that question for, you know, for, for, for you know, sort of complicated markets, you know, it's, it's different layers of customers, right? So mm -hmm. for software, you know, there's 500, you know, big Fortune 500 companies, but there's another 5,000 mid-sized companies. There's another half million kind of small companies that might buy software. Um, and, then they, and then they're organized by vertical. And then for your specific product and the way you're going to enter the market, you're going to go after mid-sized companies and the insurance vertical, and then you're going to expand out up and down and sideways. And every step of the way, you have a concrete bottoms-up estimate of how many customers there are. And then you go validate. You go talk to the customers, um, and you go validate that those customers would actually pay X price at X time for... Right. for that product, and, and, and you build it bottoms up. And it seems like the same thing, because you, 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 you emit a number at the uh -huh, other end yeah. in the exact same way, but it's not the number that matters, it's the fact that it demonstrates that you actually really deeply understand your market. And that you took the time to validate that those, yeah. that, that inference yeah. was actually correct. Yeah, that's right. And then that, 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 that's a, that is a, a framework within which you can think about customer development. Um, oh, yeah. and, then, and then you can extrapolate from that to, okay, if we can get you know, 10 customers successful with this product and this model at this price, then we know we can extrapolate that to another 100 because we know who those 100 are. And then, right, there's your hockey yeah. stick. It surprised me. It's a mistake I see corporate entrepreneurs and Silicon Valley entrepreneurs make exactly the same, the tops down business plan, the top down business case. And I feel like I've become like the last person in Silicon Valley who's pro business plan. Yeah. Uh, so I'm pro business for the record. It's like, hi, I'm Eric. I'm pro business plan. And I want to check this out with you guys. Of course, the prose part of the, the fiction writing part of the business plan, we can discard. I think we can all agree on that. But the model that's in Appendix B, the spreadsheet that actually shows how customer behaviors aggregate up to something that is of significance, seems to be critically important, because otherwise, how do you know which hypotheses are really worth testing? Yeah, I think, I think business plans partly got a bad name because you had a lot of like venture capitalists and things say, don't send me business plans. Um, and it's sort of, I don't know, there's a bunch of reasons and various pundits sort of were against them. I think you should think about a business plan as something that maybe only you and your co-founder might read. Mm -hmm. It's not a marketing document. It's a, it's a, it's a planning document. Um, and, the, and the benefit of a business plan is the process that you go through creating it. It will, it will not you know, survive much longer after you start the company. Right. But I think it's, you know, like if you're about to go spend you know, 10 years of your life on something, you know, certainly I think it's a good exercise to go and like really, really sort of uh, think it through and find the holes. And, you know, I found in my first company, I wrote a, I wrote a you know, like a 20 page business plan. <laughs> and I found that in the process of doing it, I realized, okay, wait, I haven't actually thought through this part. Right. And like, I mean, maybe it's not a, maybe for some, I think people think differently. Some people might think better in a PowerPoint or in a, I don't know what, in my case, like by writing it, I found that it was sort of, wait, there's like five logical big holes That's here. That's like a philosophy like, major to me. Yeah. And maybe, maybe it may just be like your learning, your thinking style or something. But, but the point is whether it's a business plan or not, it's to like really think it through. And it's like just the, the marginal cost of spending three weeks thinking it through versus 10 years of your life and millions of dollars is so much lower that like it feels like a very good trade-off to me, but... 
The other is I think people overtrain, and I'm glad you're actually passing on a bunch of these questions. People overtrain on how to convince investors to give you money. I think people uh -huh. undertrain on how to be so compelling that investors can't resist giving you money, which I think is an important distinction because you also have to be that compelling in order to hire and retain good people. Mm -hmm. and, and so, like, I, I would actually, you almost want to shift the focus of all these discussions to, okay, what's it going to take for you to bring the team on board? And then what's going to, what's it going to take for you to be able to retain the team through the hard periods? Right. Um, and, you know, as, it, as and all of us who have worked in companies, you all know this, is like it's a big difference as an employee of a company, small company or a big company, you know, well, <laughs> Colin, Powell, Colin Powell once said the art of leadership is getting people to follow you, if only out of curiosity. <laughs> um, and um, and, and the, way to, the, way to, the way to implement that is to actually explain to the people in your company, here is what we are doing. Like, here, here is right. the plan. Here is how we conceive the plan. You know, here are the things that we know. Here are the things we don't know. Here's, the, you know, here's literally like the idea maze we're going through. Here's how we think the market unfolds. And then, you know, every week, every month, every quarter update, you know, we have learned the following. We've been yep. running these experiments. We've learned this. We're adapting as we go. And the CEOs who do this really well are able, I mean, it's really striking. The CEOs that are really good at this are able to retain really talented people for a very long time, even when something's not working. Um, whereas the CEOs that don't do this lose people very quickly uh, the minute anything yeah. goes wrong because people are just like, I, I, you know, I don't know. He, he's all excited all the time. I don't really understand. <laughs> but I don't really understand. He's not why. explained to me yeah. why. Um, and, uh, you know, people quit. It's actually a really funny thing. People quit because they just get embarrassed. Like, they, they just literally, they can't explain. If they can't explain to their spouse, or they can't explain to their kids, or they can't explain to their neighbors what they're doing, like, that's a, that's a big tipping point issue for a lot of people. And oh, yeah. so being really articulate there. and really clear um, is, is an enormous motivator uh, for these companies and being able to think about plans in these ways. And, by the way, if you can do this with your employees, then investors are a slam dunk. Yeah, so, so unsurprisingly, a lot of questions coming in about how do we, okay, so how do we engineer this growth process? How do we achieve the kind of growth that you guys are getting excited about? Um, and so one question is, could you tell us an example of a company you invested in recently or that you were involved in yourself uh, that faced a growth challenge and was able to solve it in an interesting, as person specifies, non-gimmicky way? You, you do that. Um, I don't know. What, 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 I guess we can't ask follow-ups. What kind of growth challenge? Yeah, so, so it just says a growth challenge. But I, I, I interpret the question yeah. to mean, uh, you know, companies are not yet, you know, if you have a company that's not achieving the level of growth that it wants, and then something happens, and now it is achieving this kind of super growth. You know, there's a lot of conversation these days about growth hacking as, like, yeah. as a kind of, I don't know, I think of it as like applying the kind of the quantitative experimental frameworks yeah. we're talking about from product development back into marketing. So maybe tell some stories about people that were actually able to figure that out from an operation, from an operating point of view, make that growth happen, and, and, but, but in a non-gimmicky way. I mean, you do find, like, so um, I think I can say this publicly. Like, I, 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 think, I think if, well, let me put it. Why don't you go through it, and then we'll figure out if it's okay to talk okay. about it. <laughs> um, the, uh, I, think, I think one interesting thing is if you graphed out, um, in my experience, if you graphed out the success of, I could say success in quotes, of startups over time, and the, let's call success revenues or users, um, it's, it's a pretty surprising set of graphs. In particular, how many companies are like flat for like two years and then suddenly go way up? How many companies go way up and then crash? Like it's almost, like it's, it's very hard to find patterns. Um, um, so yeah, like I, I was an investor in a, in a video game company and it, they released, you know, 30 video games, and it was just like nothing was working, and they switched, and they pivoted, and then finally they released one game, and it wasn't even a game that was sort of high priority, and it became the biggest thing, and they, you know, were this huge success, and they sold the company. Um, OMG Pop. Yeah, that, that was one. And then, uh, okay, fine. <laughs> Which we're very proud of. Yeah. Um, and, uh, which is just like, you know, 
And if you told me, you know, uh, of, like if I had sort of, you know, you told me two years before that compared to some other company, which at the time was, you know, crushing it on the cover of TechCrunch and everything else, and now is like looking for, you know, is basically bankrupt or something. Like it's just shocking the, the rate of change, which I think is both, it's both scary because on the <laughs> downside, um, and it really is, a, this is a, it's, it's a very, uh, like in the tech, right in the heart of the technology business, it's a very, um, you know, this is why if you talk to most entrepreneurs in the technology business, they're like constantly like basically sick to their stomach because it's so incredibly stressful. Um, and, and on the flip side, like to give you hope, like it's amazing how quick this stuff turns as well as well. I have, an example, I have an example for you in your question. So there's a company I'm an angel investor in that I'm really proud of called Wealth, Wealthfront. Oh, sure. It's so Andy Ratcliffe, who's a former top uh, benchmark VC who became an entrepreneur. And he, he actually became, he actually went from being a VC to an entrepreneur at the same time I went from being an entrepreneur to VC. So we call each other and torture each other relentlessly <laughs> over both of those transitions. So, um, so he, he had this sort of key observation starting Wealthfront. So Wealthfront's an online money management company. Um, and it's literally an alternative to having your money be managed by a stockbroker or by a bank or something like that. And he basically made this observation that many books have been written about, but the problem had never been solved, which is money management sort of for consumers is kind of a scam um, where there's a lot of banks and money management firms and you know, mutual fund complexes that will take your money and basically invest it, charge you giant fees and return you basically the market average over time minus whatever fees they charge you. Um, and it's kind of this kind of this thing that just people people there's been a whole book Jack Bogle of Vanguard has written book book after book after book of kind of how bad this stuff all is, and the only approach has been to basically just invest in these kind of you know sort of index funds that don't try to do anything smart, and so Andy put together this whole team and this whole approach to have basically let's apply Silicon Valley software thinking to money management and let's have a really smart way uh, of doing money management and doing it right and there's all these you know how to do tax losses properly and asset allocation and you know life uh, you know sort of but you know, life, you know, duration planning and the role of insurance and, and, and kind of there's all these different kind of things you, you would do if, if it was just easy to use the software. And so he built the software, took it to market, and like it was, it was exactly one of these things where it's like a $2 trillion industry, yeah. but the knife fight customer by customer against the massive marketing budgets coming from all these bad companies was going to be very tough. So what he did, he called me up one day and he said, he said, I think I figured it out. And he said, it turns out, you know, surprise, surprise, it turned, and this was like in 09, 09, 010 is when this really started. So it turns out there are some of these new Silicon Valley companies that are actually working, like <laughs> Facebook and Twitter and LinkedIn. And they're actually succeeding and they're actually hiring a lot of employees and they're actually like, you know, they're, 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 uh, you know the valuations are rising and their revenues are rising and at some point they're going to go public and their employees are going to start to actually have money to invest. And, you know, by the way, like they're primarily engineers inside these companies. And I think if I took this product in and I explained, basically, this is money management for engineers and I explained what I did, they would say, well, this is obvious that this is better than anything else I could get. And so to his point, he kind of reduced mm -hmm. it all the way down to nose counting, you know, three or four years ago, nose counting of like, okay, how many new successful Silicon Valley companies are there? And then how to get front of, in front of their employee bases. And that worked. And so now the whole thing is extrapolating out from that. Right. But he had to bring it all the way down to a very specific customer segment before he could figure out how to unlock the broader market. It's one of those dichotomies and dualities maybe that I think entrepreneurs really struggle with. You kind of have to go narrow to go broad or go small to go yeah. big. Like, what advice do you give your founders who are struggling with that, who like, want to build a product for everybody on day one, who want to give the biggest possible launch, do the most, you know, go big to go big and, and basically almost guarantee themselves failure? I think I'm a believer in your sort of in your philosophy there, where you know I think I think you said once did Google, Google. It's it's <laughs> ironic that Google launches their launched you know wave when they never actually launched uh, you know Google itself, yeah. right? Like yeah, so all of their sort of best well. products didn't have launches. The um, the um, um, what I well um, sorry for, I lost my train of thought there. The uh, um, 
Um, sorry. I'm talking about Google. I'll pick it up. I've, yeah. been trying to think, I've tried to think of an example, but go ahead. Yes, he's trying not to. You guys should be able to read each other's mind yeah. by now. He's That's trying not right. to offend anybody. No. Yeah. It's not a problem I've ever had. <laughs> um, so um, I've actually changed my thinking on this a lot in the last five years. So mm -hmm. I came up, I came up, you know, I sort of learned everything kind of actually at the tail end of kind of the old model of kind of, you know, in the 90s of like you just apply a massive marketing blast to everything. Like yeah. you just, you know, you go big or go home. And, and the reason is because like it's just there's so much noise in the market. It's it's so hard to get a message through and you just go for maximum force as fast as you can and you just try to hit the entire market. And mm -hmm. you, and by the way, that when that works, it's glorious. Like there are companies that just come out of the shoot and they just, you know, get big and like it's just great. Um, uh, I've become more of a convert, um, uh, and Brian Chesky is a guy I've learned a lot on this yeah. at Airbnb, and the big thing that Brian always says is, he's like, no, he's like, it's not, basically you, you guys, meaning me, are like yeah. over-focused on market size, it's can you get 100 customers who are just absolutely yeah. thrilled with you, just like thrilled and giddy. Um, and this goes back to the nose counting market right. sizing thing, because if you can get 100 of those, then you can get another 1,000, and then you can get another 10,000, and then another 100,000, and then a million, and right, then you're, then you're yep. talking. Um, and then that's related to another thing that we observe a lot in a lot of the work that we do is the market sizes for a lot of the kinds of things that we're talking about are much larger today. The addressable, total addressable market is just larger today than it was 10 or 15 or 20 years ago. Yeah. And the internet and mobile phones have had a huge impact on that. You know, in the late 90s, total addressable market for internet companies was 50 million people on dial-up, mostly on AOL, which barely counted. Yeah. Um, and um, people would use the internet two or three times a day if they could get through the dial tone <laughs> um, and get through and actually get a connection at 14 0.4 kilobits, and today everybody's on their smartphone at 20 megabits, like you know, 80 times a day. Yeah. And and there's two billion people with smartphones on its way to five billion people, and so I think the pressure, at least how I feel a little bit, is I've taken the pressure off myself of saying, okay, how big is the total market? Like, let's just take for granted, let's take a little bit more for granted that markets are actually going to be large, just because the world has effectively gotten bigger, um, and then let's really focus in on who the enthusiastic customers are out of the gate. Mm -hmm. And then yeah. figure out how to tie the thread between them. Yeah, I think a lot about the. Um, so, to, I agree with the. You know, find something a few people love and not not sort of everyone likes. And I think also, you know, if you think about um, most most of the best products, they'll start off finding. It's just a little bit like crossing the chasm. If you if you haven't read that, it's a great book. But it's sort of what they call the bowling pin strategy, where you you know you find a cluster of people mm -hmm. who who all sort of know each other and talk or enter companies. And if you're selling B two B. Um, and you get them to love it and share it, and then hopefully those they have sort of spillover effects into other clusters. Um, and this is, of course, how um, Mark knows more about it than I do. But how Facebook started off—you know, the sort of college students loved it, and someone went to Harvard, and they loved it, and they went to high school with someone at Princeton, right. and then it spread over there. Um, and actually, that pattern I think repeats itself in a lot of businesses, including, you know, what as you really—and this is, goes to also the point of like nose counting and really understanding the market. When yeah. you really understand the market, you also know that like whatever in you know in the pharmaceutical industry, everyone knows that. You know, I'm just making this up, but like Pfizer is the one that everyone that adopts the new technology, and everyone else follows it. And you know that, and you know the sort of patterns of how. The IT people here are influenced by the IT people here, um, and so you sort of really understand that cluster. And I sort of think of—I guess I think of startups as sort of you're in three modes, where it's the first time you're sort of in search mode, where you're kind of looking for the right clusters, and then you're sort of okay. I found two that might work. Let me go and see if my product works there. And then the third phase, if once you've accomplished that, is to then spread out into more. Yeah, can many I generalize? From and then, like to clusters. me, yeah, and to me, like the, and I think it kind of goes to your kind of you know hypothesis testing mode. It's generally almost always a mistake to sort of skip step ones and two, yeah. one and two, and go directly to the market when you don't even know if it works in which clusters and how it's going to spread and and um, yeah. Yeah. Okay. We're running out of time, and, I, and so I thought this would be a good good kind of last question. Um, and the question is. What do you think will be the most revolutionary change in the way startups get built and funded in the next five years? And don't say Bitcoin. 
A lot of people would say crowdfunding. I think that's sort of the, the top yeah, candidate. How do you guys like feel Angel about that? or something, yeah. Yeah, it's fantastic. I mean, yeah. we see startups, I mean, I gotta tell you, you want, catnip for a venture capitalist is walking the door with $5 million of pre-orders. Yeah, like we'll jump, yeah. We'll jump right out of our chairs. Yeah. Um, it's, it's, it's spectacular. Yeah, so crowdfunding is, is gonna be very, very big. Um, and then the other is just, I think, um, big data analytics, the ability to kind of take the big data model and apply it to more and more markets, more and more industries, more and more spaces, more and more aspects mm -hmm. of the experiment. Kind of counter-arguing, you know, I don't yeah. know, maybe, maybe it's, it's, the, the sort of, it's the sort of big data analytical component, um, you know, married to, I think, what is going to be a renaissance in sort of old school, brick by brick, company building, sales and marketing. And there's yep. all kinds of very interesting hybrid models now. You, know, you see this in a lot of enterprise software. There's these extremely interesting models now for viral propagation. Uh, of enterprise products that, you know, sort of consumerized enterprise products, and then you overlay a state-of-the-art, like, high-end Salesforce on top of that, and then they go in later and they go get all the money, and, like, the combination of the one-two punch is extremely powerful. Um, and so a renaissance of the old methods combined with the best of the new methods, I think, yeah. is going to be a big deal. Seems like a really good place to stop. Uh, Mark and Chris, really very grateful you guys made the time to come down. I think everybody really enjoyed. Please, thank you. Uh, welcome. Thanks, everybody. Join me in welcoming. Thank, thank you, man. Thank you. Thanks. Uh, blah, blah, blah. Thanks, yeah, thanks, guys. All right, put my notes down. Really, really okay. Okay, we are not quite done. Uh, I'm going to bring my co-host Sarah Milstein back up. Sarah, you want to come back up? Uh, and while she's coming up, I'll embarrass her a little bit by saying that uh, one of the things about being the face of Lean Startup is people attribute to me things that other people do, which you know most of the time I don't mind. But in this case, it's really quite ridiculous. The vast majority of the work that makes a conference like this possible is not done by me. Uh, it is done by an incredible team uh, who is, uh, you know, the last two years been led uh, by Sarah. And so, first of all, I hope you will join me in giving Sarah a huge round of applause. Thank you. For Thank, you. Thank you. And, you know, so anyway, I. I I am incredibly grateful to, to Sarah and to the team, but mostly to all of you who have taken the time to do this and make this possible. We, people sometimes get upset when we describe Lean Startup as a movement, because you know, that's usually something we reserve for social movements. But I hope if you've detected anything in the patterns among the different speakers here is that we do share a common vision and a common ambition to change the way that work is done, and a very particular kind of work, a work that's increasingly important to our future as a civilization, as a society. So if you don't mind be, be being grandiose for a second, if we don't figure this out, if we don't learn how to build companies that are built for sustainable growth through continuous innovation, if we don't learn to master these incredible gyrations of disruption and technological change that are coming after us, we're, we're in big trouble. And to me, what, what keeps me getting up in the morning and what has inspired me meeting so many of you over the past few days is how many of you are deeply, deeply committed to trying to crack that code and figure it out. And, and what we know today is the tiniest, tiniest tip of the iceberg uh, in terms of this new way of management. And so for those of you who have been willing to be in the kind of laboratory of entrepreneurship, especially those of you who toil out of Silicon Valley, out of the limelight, trying to figure out how do we advance the state of the art, I just want to say thank you. And, and I really appreciate you making the time to, to, to be with us, and I hope each of you will, will walk away from this with just one thing you're going to actually do tomorrow. Not, I understand you can change your life next year and 10 years, I'm, 10 years from now, me is always like so ready for change and able to do amazing <laughs> things. And even one month from me now is super productivity and can handle every problem. But what are you gonna do tomorrow to make this a reality? Because that long-term vision was gonna have to be built by a lot of really rapid short-term experiments. So 
For that, I really thank you and look forward to hearing all about what you accomplish at a future conference. All right, so a couple more things. Um, on that point, I think we've got a really good start here in terms of um, doing things differently. We asked you guys to act a little differently than the normal conference audience, um, to interact with each other more, uh, to be part of what we were creating, to, to engage in some of our experiments, to, to watch some sponsored talks that were different, to go to office hours, which was totally new for us, to do group dinners together last night um, and the night before. And you did all of that beautifully. You created a very different kind of conference than we usually see in the business world. So you are off to a very good start here. Um, and we hope you take that out into the world and into your businesses in doing more things. A um, Couple of other quick points. The fun stuff. Tomorrow workshops in the morning, we just want to remind you guys, we've got two at nine o'clock in the morning that anybody can attend. Um, and Eric and I, they're at the Fairmont, and Eric and I will be hanging out there also in the morning. So if folks have questions or want to chat about anything, um, you can find us there tomorrow too. Um, we have, when I walked in before coming back from the, the Fairmont, I noticed that there was a table with like a lot of glasses on it and like people's eyeglasses, a couple of notebooks and stuff. It's all lost and found, it turns out. So if you are missing your notebook, your eyeglasses, your phone, it's on the table in the lobby. <laughs> Don't miss that. And one of the notebooks was like composition book in English with all these Spanish business cards in it. That's somebody's notebook for sure. <laughs> <laughs> All right, and then finally, as Eric said, this conference has a lot of people running behind the scenes that you don't see, and we really do want to thank them because if you have had a good experience here, it's really their fault. Um, so in particular, Heather McGough and Melissa Tinnatigan are our two full-time people. Um, we are so lucky to have them. Are they too embarrassed to come out? And I, I think they are backstage. Um, also have a whole cadre of part-time folks who treat us with the passion that you would hope that full-time people would. Um, Michelle Kimball, Debbie Pfeiffer, Lisa Reagan, Stephanie Nix, AV up there, for those of you in the balcony can say hi, um, Corinne Ikeda, Brittany Sochard, James Hart, Brian Flanagan, and our volunteers who have been fantastic in really making this whole show run. Um, I wanted to give a special shout out to Nick Reed in the back who has been here right through helping us. Um, and our live stream hosts. Hello out there, thank you guys we so much. <laughs> and finally, we had two advisors this year that we just wanted to shout out to um, who gave us lots of help in many ways, um, Kathy Astromoff and Kathy Sierra. So thank you to all that group of people and to you. And we look forward to seeing many of you tomorrow and on Twitter forever. <laughs> okay, that's it. Thank you all very Thank much. You. We'll see you soon. <laughs>